Washington, August 24, 1814. The British have set fire to the White House. Dolly Madison, First Lady and wife of James Madison, hurries into the enormous East Room. She has a singular goal, to rescue the magnificent Gilbert Stuart portrait of America's first president, George Washington. They hack the canvas out of an enormous gilded frame, roll it up, and flee. She gave strict instructions that if captured, the portrait was to be destroyed. George Washington, even in death, even in a painting, was too valuable to the young nation to fall into enemy hands. Blind History, Season 4, Episode 2, we're talking George Washington. George Washington, of course, well known to everybody as being the first president of the United States of America. He was one of the founding fathers of the United States of America. And all around, uh, seemingly one of those guys who history accounts as a pretty good dude. He, he doesn't seem to have too many rough edges, but no doubt we will discover some of those through the course of this episode. He was alive from 1732 until 1799, head of the Continental Army, the chairperson of the Convention for the Constitution, first president, and a husband of Martha. Those are pretty much the important vital statistics. My co-host on the show, as always, Anthony Medera, history nerd, just like me. So what do you think of George Washington? I think he's solid. Yeah. I think that's the way to describe him. Bit boring. Yeah, I think he's just, yeah. He's <laughs> solid. arguing with Yeah, me. no, I'm definitely not arguing. I think he had a deficit in humor. Well, I mean, there's, there's a good reason that you don't see portraits of him smiling, right? Yeah, so what I heard was he had wooden teeth. They've, they actually have a, a set of his teeth in the Mount Vernon Museum, and they are either made, they haven't done tests, but they're either made of elephant or hippopotamus ivory. Oh, okay, so, it so wasn't not wooden. wood. But what happened was that they weren't wooden for sure, but they've obviously stained with, to a brown with color. use. Yeah, and then people used to think that they were wooden. It must have been a, a horrible sight. But then in those days, nobody had good teeth. No, I was just thinking because he was trying to marry his love of his life, and and she turned him down twice, and he ended up marrying Martha. So Martha was like the second best. She was the third, she, apparently. Third best. Yes. Well, she had to put up with his teeth, and obviously it wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. So let's just look at this guy's history. A lot of people want to know whether or not he was actually born to a wealthy family. Um, I know you've you've discovered quite a bit about the mom and dad and the brother, because there were six brothers, I think, uh, yeah. all together. And then there's a daughter of a brother and something sinister there. Yes, that's right. First of all, the family came from, from England, and they'd only been, uh, by the time he was born, 80 years, had been in the new um, country mm-hmm. and, and they settled in Virginia which was a British colony and um, his dad owned a number of plantations so they were wealthy they were part of the wealthy side but his dad died when he was 11 so he took over helping with the farm but there was a gentleman by the name of Lord Fairfax mm-hmm. who um, was very well established and a massively wealthy I mean 10 times as wealthy as, as the Washingtons and he took him under his wing, and that's where he got his surveying skills from. And that's where he also became the, the surveyor for the county of Fairfax. And actually, at the opportunity, at a very, very young age, 16, 17, and 18, to make money and buy more land. That's amazing. I mean, working at 17, you know, 
we think that uh, these days it's cruel to make someone work when they're at university age, but there he was already surveying. He was also very good at maths and map making, apparently. Correct, and I don't, you don't see anywhere his formal education, but they said the wealthy at the time often had tutors that used to come, but you could see he couldn't read and write properly at the time that he, that later on we'll discuss it when he went to war, um, in the French Indian War. So there were some gaps in his education. So when it came to who would inherit Mount Vernon after his father died, he really parceled off bits of land to each of the sons, but eventually George got everything. Correct. Lawrence was his mentor, and he was very close to Lawrence. Lawrence was his half-brother. Okay. So in other words, from his dad's first marriage. And they spent a lot of time together. Lawrence was substantially older than him. And the only time he ever left America, it wasn't called the United States by then, but was to go to Barbados. And the reason why they went to Barbados is that Lawrence was suffering heavily from TB or tuberculosis. And he was trying to get that different air to help him. So what, uh, George went with him. And he picked up smallpox in, in, in Barbados, and that's why his face had scarred so badly for the rest of his life. But two years later, his half-brother died, and he left his estate to his daughter. And if his daughter passed away before George, then George would get that estate. And she died literally two years later. So maybe if it was in today's age, that might have been sinister or something with a conspiracy theory. Well, I mean, it just shows you also that he got the smallpox, his brother got the, the consumption, the daughter died mysteriously. There was so much disease and, and humans just didn't last very long. No. I mean, you were lucky to make it to adulthood in the first place, but George would have fallen in love with Mount Vernon. And it's not surprising that the whole way through his service, uh, both as Continental Army commander and as president, all he actually wanted to do was go back to Mount Vernon. Yeah. He loved that place. It's on the on the banks of the, the Potomac River, Potomac River as the Americans call it, and it's got this magnificent view. Um, it's still a beautiful museum, and you can go there and, and visit it. And he's actually buried there. A lot of people think he's buried in the capital. Oh, I wasn't buried. aware of that. So he's, he's buried, buried in, a, in a little tomb, very humble little tomb in the grounds of Mount Vernon along with Martha next to him. And interestingly, while we're talking about his family, he never had children. Correct, yes. Martha's so, two children he treated like his own. That's right. She was married a previous time. Correct. And she had two kids, and they raised them as if they were his. Yeah. And he raised the grandchildren as well at Mount Vernon. But really, it's interesting that the first president of the United States has no offspring alive today yeah, in the United so. States. She was also wealthy, so there was a you know there was a lot of money going around between them. Yeah, and and he did own slaves. This is another controversial point. There were about three hundred slaves when he died that um, that he obviously left to the family. Um, and obviously, during his life, his views on slavery changed substantially, as everybody's did during that era, yeah. because it was just a, the way people lived at the beginning of, of George Washington's life. But he said that serving in the army, he'd met many black volunteers and black soldiers. Mm. And just because he'd met them and seen their heroism, his views had changed, that by the end of his life, he was, he was probably very much more anti-slavery. Yeah. When you talked a little bit earlier about um, him always wanting to go back to Mount Vernon, he, he grew up on farms with his parents, and he loved shooting and riding his horse and fishing, but he loved farming. He was actually a genuine enthusiastic, mm. and he was very, very intelligent when it came to farming, and he studied so much, and he would contact people and write letters to the best farmers or experts in agriculture in England, because why were their cows bigger 
than his cows yeah. and why, the size of their wheat crops. So he really moved the level of farming in the colonies at the time to a different level. No, incredible guy. There's also that story, and it was probably made up by one of his biographers. And it kind of proves that he was an honest man. Uh, when he was a young boy, he cut down a cherry tree with a, a hatchet that he'd been given as a gift. And his father was very upset with him and said, who, well, asked, who'd cut down this tree? And he uttered those immortal lines, I cannot tell a lie, father, it was me. And people have used that line over and over again to say, well, look, here was an honest man, and that's why he would have made the perfect president, and that's why he did. But let's talk about the real reasons he became president. I mean, he was put in charge of the Continental Army. Um, he had some military experience, but by no means, I mean, in America at that stage, the army, in inverted commas, was really uh, traders, uh, farm laborers, uh, merchantmen. It was whoever they could find, and a lot of them were – Hardly a disciplined fighting corps. They were much smaller in number than any of the British um, forces in, in America at the time. They didn't have great equipment. Yeah. So they were up against a very, very tough proposition here. Correct. And he took over, um, having been appointed by the, the various heads of the colonies and their conventions in Philadelphia, took over. And the first real test was at Valley Forge, where during winter and disease, the cold, hunger – a lack of equipment, he managed to, along with um, with some Germans, he managed to get them into shape. Mm. He was training the men. He spent an inordinate amount of time getting them into order and sorting out uniforms and making sure their equipment was ready. And then by the time they emerged from that Valley Forge winter in spring, they were strong. And he then had fought a number of battles. And it's interesting, he wasn't a particularly great soldier. No, he was definitely not an Alexander or Julius Caesar. It no. was, he was just so committed and disciplined, but he didn't have any creativity when it came to strategy. And lost way more battles than he yes, was. Yes, 100%. You know, it also stands to reason because the um, the British were so much more well-supplied and, and they had been in the business of fighting for all their lives, a professional soldiery. But having said that, his biggest enemy was not the British – because they, they would desert if they found too much pressure, that they would run away. Or alternatively, that friendly fire was a big problem in their life, so they would kill each other. <laughs> and also, you know, um, the Congress were jealous. They didn't want to support him, and that's why they had no food, they had no equipment. And you're 100% correct about Valley Forge. He had to regroup, he, and, and his biggest strength was to motivate them, um, give them purpose. And finally, Congress and the French – turned it around because he fought the French in what we'd call a skirmish war like 25 years before and that's where he got his experience but now they helped him to actually knock in the I think it was the Battle of Yorktown and to, yeah. to knock the final nail in the into cloth. Cornwallis yeah. and well, we'll, get to, we'll get to Yorktown in a moment because you, you said that he wasn't very creative but he did do one quite smart thing in, in the Battle of Boston Harbour where he moved the cannons, which he'd brought down two months earlier. Very smart thinker. He'd found the place. He'd realized if he positions these cannons up on this spithead, he can fire down on the British ships. And he managed to beat them into submission there. They then retreated and reassembled their forces in New York. There were a range of battles that we won't go into because most of them were boring and most of them George lost. Um, but ultimately in New Jersey – Crossing the River Trenton, he did very well. And then finally, Yorktown, which you've just mentioned now, which was really Britain's last stand in the colonies. And General Cornwallis, who was his enemy, had been misled. And funnily enough, it has to do with his teeth. Did you hear the story? No, I didn't. So 
he sent a, a fake letter knowing his letters would be intercepted. He sent a fake letter to his dentist saying, I'm going to be in New York for a while, so can you send me these implements and come and check my teeth? And the British intercepted this, and they thought, well, fine, he says he's going to be in New York for a while, so we can get ready over here. And uh, they then positioned themselves and, and prepared as if he was going to be in New York. Meanwhile, he'd moved the army and was heading straight for Yorktown. And he just left the teeth. And he, he yeah, clearly the teeth, it was a ruse. That <laughs> was a ruse. That's to, clear. So he <laughs> actually was quite strategic. Busy. Yeah, so not entirely boring. Uh, 1787, he was, of course, the Constitutional Convention Chair. And then in 1789, he was made president because effectively then Britain had been defeated. But Gareth, just quickly before we, we move to that, you know that when we picture the United States now and we, th- we think of Washington, the Virginia, the area of Washington, mm. D.C., New York, you know, you don't picture harsh snow crossing no. big, fat, swollen rivers, losing uh, military across the rivers, guys dying of hypothermia. Um, it was actually frightening it was almost deepest darkest america it was it was it was jungle and it was it was swamp yes and if it wasn't very hot it was very cold and washington itself the city of washington dc which was named after him uh, although he was very involved with l'enfant the french uh, architect and and designer and artist in plotting out the city he actually chose the location for the white house and for the capital Sure. I think that was when he was president, am I right? That's, well, yeah. yes, but he never lived at the White House. Okay. Interestingly yeah. enough, the first occupant of the White House was actually his successor, John Adams. Okay. Um, so although it was named after him, he never lived there. He lived in New York for a time and then in, in Pennsylvania later on. But when they got together to, to now say, look, we're fed up, we need to take on the – this was obviously prior, prior to, to the war, yeah. Yeah, it was because, you know, the, obviously the British were now saying, look, we need to earn some money out of these colonies. And they actually wound up the taxes. Mm-hmm. I think it was the tea tax yep. and the stamp tax. So that really pushed them into the war of independence or that particular war, the continental war, of which they came out victorious. And then that's where the ball started to roll towards now developing a, a constitution and a government. And he was the guy who was chosen, mostly because he was tall, <laughs> because he had fought in, in the war and was victorious as a general. And people looked up to him. They, they, they genuinely liked the guy. He had natural leadership skills. He used to say that he preferred to be neutral in situations of international conflict. And there were a couple of things about his presidency that were noteworthy. Um, he only wanted to serve two terms, and he set a a standard, a default mm. for all presidents since then, except for Roosevelt. And Donald, I see he wants to push for a third. Oh, is he pushing for a third? <laughs> <laughs> and let him do his second first. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> that's a nice sentence. Uh, so he, he said, no, two-term limits essential. And when it came to neutrality in, in the war between Britain and France, he actually refused to commit American troops to any part of that war. He said, I want an American character that the powers of Europe may be convinced that we act for ourselves and not for others. Mm, Obviously, strong. a young nation, he didn't yeah. want to commit them into uh, some kind of conflict too soon after they were still trying to establish their own nation. But there was also quite a bit of conflict with the founding, as they had called it, the founding fathers, when they started to form this government. Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, his Secretary of Treasury was very aligned to him, whereas Thomas Jefferson, I think he was a... I'm not sure what position he was, but he was also in his government. And what he said at the time, which is quite interesting, George Washington said, when left to themselves, mankind are unfit for their own government. So it's just an idea, giving you a good idea of how he saw this conservative 
guidance type of government. Yeah, and, and he was supposedly a federalist, so he believed that power should be distributed and that local authorities should decide their future, and then from there the state, and then, if necessary, the federal government. But, you know, a lot of government these days, we look to the president to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. In those days, the president was like your last resort. You'd go to your local authorities first, and they'd have the power. And it was very rare that the president would do anything, actually. Most of the time, he was just hoping to get back to Mount Vernon. But political parties weren't yet necessarily mm-hmm. established. And he warned this. This is a very interesting quote, which I think will make a lot of people think about this current party political atmosphere in both the United States and in so many countries around the world. This is what Washington warned. He said, however political parties may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Sure. So I mean, that's just... I mean, spot on. That is what political parties have become. So he was prescient in that respect. He was the one that actually passed the bill for that 4th of July to be a national holiday, yep. amongst other things. And then his final speech... Every February, it's read out in Congress. Wow. Now, the Americans really do look up to him for obvious yeah, reasons. Here are a couple of things you might not know. There was a whiskey distillery at Mount Vernon, which was the largest whiskey distillery in America at the time <laughs> when he died. Proper. And he died in uh, 1799. Um, he went walking on December the 12th. It was obviously in, in the Northern Hemisphere, the middle of winter. It was very cold. He fell ill uh, with a cough. And he actually requested that the doctor bleed him four times, which was a common sort of treatment Mm. in those days, although it was a stupid treatment. It probably helped hasten his death. Mm. Uh, Anyway, he he died from essentially a a throat infection, a sore throat. They didn't have antibiotics, so there was nothing to do for it. At the age of 67, which is actually nowadays it's very young. It's it's not that old. And his last words were, tis well. Really? Yeah. At least he went with uh, dignity and nobility. But, I mean, if we look now at the United States, I mean, there's a state named after him. There's a city named after him. He's on the U.S. dollar bill. That's right. The one dollar bill. I mean, there's cities, there's parks. And and so much more. And now the name synonymous with America. There's an interesting link to the Washington origins in England from the Spencer estate where Princess Diana eventually was from. But um, the, the Spencers have Washingtons buried in their in their grounds. So that so was prior to them coming across. Before they went to America, they lived in that part of, of England. Sure, that's incredible. Yeah. It's interesting also to note that George Washington, while being the first president, was not necessarily the best president, but he set n- a number of standards in place, which I think made it very difficult for other people to live up to them. President's Day is effectively a celebration of not all the presidents, but of Washington and Lincoln, the two greatest ones. And he's, of course, immortalized on Mount Rushmore as well, as one of the four faces of the four great presidents there. Look, I think it's um, he was the, the, the father of, of the nation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where it all started. And I think, you know, they, they did well by having him. I think they can be thankful that he was the start. I mean, he was prudent, fair, and he had integrity. He favored neutrality on foreign affairs, but I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think they, they didn't go far wrong. Just a bad smile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> George Washington, first president of the United States.
Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And was that a wig? Uh, no, interestingly enough, that was his real hair. Was that his real hair? But he powdered it, like a lot of okay. men in those days yeah. did. So all the official portraits, in fact, all the portraits of Washington, show him with this white head of hair. And it looks like it could have been a wig, but it's actually his natural hair. His real hair color was red. Really? Yeah, but the powder made it white. And it was quite distinguished in those days. So you have a ponytail at the back and you have the curls on the side. That's why they all looked like that.